Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Hello. We are your podcast of music discovery, proud members of the largest music podcast network on planet Earth, Pantheon Podcasts. Uh, we are also parents to delightful, growing young podcasts called <laughs> Audio Judo Does Jazz and Throughline. They are both well-written and wonderfully executed, and we hope that you uh, take a second to find those as well. It was an awkward pregnancy, but we were proud of the results. We were proud of it. It was good. It was good. It was a, it was long gestation, but uh, they turned out okay. Yeah. Toddlers. They can both be found at Pantheon as well, or you can find them on our website, audiojudo.com. In addition to uh, these three offerings, we also have a Patreon account that provides additional content and a way to get some other fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, Kyle, how can they do that? Well, we have three Patreon tiers. The Backstage Pass tier is our largest one. It's $20 a month, and for that, you get a shout out by name or nickname at the end of every episode. Early access to episodes via Patreon. Uh, access to our mini episodes that we call Judo Chops. Access to bonus bits that we had to cut from uh, regular episodes for time or clarity or whatever. Plus, after three months at that tier, you'll get a special gift from Matthew and I. And the big one, uh, after one year at that tier, you get to co-host an episode of Audio Judo with Matthew and I on the album of your choice. This reward activates after one year and can only be activated once, so choose very wisely. A little bit above your uh, price range, you can also help out the podcast and get a little something back for yourself as well uh, at the front receipt tier. It's $5 per month, and for that, you get a shout-out by name or nickname at the end of every episode. Early access to the episodes via Patreon access to the Judo Chop mini-episodes, and access to the chopped-out bonus bits. Finally, you still want to help out the podcast, but uh, your wallet's a little light right now, you can join the Shout It Out Loud tier. It's $1 or a pound or a euro or whatever your local equivalent is per month, and for that, you'll get a shout-out by name or nickname at the end of every single episode. Uh, exactly right. We have, what, at least two yep, Patreon up. episodes still coming up in the next couple of months. So Yeah, I know you do a shout-out at the end of the uh, show, but I want to give a special shout-out to uh, one of our patrons, Aaron mm. P., who sent in some really nice comments about some of our episodes that we've recorded recently. Oh, yeah. We really appreciate the uh, the feedback and um, it's a good chat with you. So today, Kyle returns to his roots, the yeah. 60s, even though Kyle never saw a second of the 60s <laughs> or the 70s for that matter, and, and only like half of the 80s. Yeah, only the second half of the 80s. It's pretty clear that your uh, heart is in this period. Well, interestingly enough, Matthew, I'll, we'll get into that in a little bit here. I think you may have been a hippie in, the, in your former life. I'm wondering if maybe I died. Like, this is my 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 past life was like, is like a smelly hippie, like oh. out on the road. Hey, man, I'm following the dead around. And then, like, I got hit by a <laughs> VW micro bus when I was trying to cross the street on mushrooms or something. And just, oh, man, what a way to die. <laughs> No, keep me alive while he finishes the solo. It's going to be two hours. I know. Do it anyways. That sounds like something you would say. Right? So what did uh, what did you pick for us today, Kyle? So today we are talking about The Velvet Underground and Nico, uh, an mm -hmm. album by The Velvet Underground. Surprise, surprise. Weird. We'll get a, we'll circle back a little bit because I think there's a better fit for why I picked this album. Okay. It's what many believe to be one of the most important records ever. Exactly. Or at least the most influential record oh, ever. Yeah. It was not a big seller when it was released. Uh, has never really been one, but its influence can be heard to this day in any punk band or any band that is alternative or doesn't follow uh, what some consider to be the mainstream. I'm sure you saw this quote. Uh, there's one quote oh. for this record that I over and over again that came up as attributed to uh, producer and musician Brian Eno, yeah. who said that uh, this album only sold about 30,000 copies in the first five years of its release, but every one of those people that bought it formed their own band. Yeah. And that's probably, you know, that's the testament. That's that's yeah. the legacy of the band. As with so many other albums that we've talked about on this podcast, frequently the first of something amazing isn't recognized as being amazing until you look back at it afterwards. 
And even when you do that, you if you don't know the history of it and you don't understand the time it was released, there's a good chance it'll sound generic and you'll you'll look at it or I guess listen to it and just like move right past it because you're like, oh, it's it's whatever it is. And I think that's part of the thing that I struggle with in regards to this record. I owned this record a few times mm-hmm. and I say that because my opinion is probably pretty contentious. But the reason I have owned it more than once is because I don't get it. <laughs> Fair enough. I'd like to consider myself an experienced music listener, someone who is willing to give almost everything a chance or two, but I just don't get it. And it's an album that I would find myself lying about to other people. Like, you listen to this record, man? It's so avant-garde and experimental. And I'd be like, yeah, totally. But I was actually thinking to myself, shouldn't it at least sound good or decent? or in parts listenable at any point. (laughs) I'm not saying that I don't like it, because I do. I just don't get it. I establish why later, and I think, you know, I think I I may have been missing something because of other people's reactions to it, and maybe I'm kind of doomed to miss the point. I don't think so, because I actually think you nailed the point perfectly. What's that? I actually don't think this is a particularly great album. Okay. It's it's good to listen to. I I enjoy listening to it from time to time. I think that it's a very important album, it's the first art rock record. Right. I won't I mean, argue that. It, it yeah. absolutely gave birth to the idea of an album, not just as a collection of music or even as a concept album, but as like a piece of art. It was, you know, a lot of the songs were based on things that the band was doing, which we'll get back to here in a minute with mm-hmm. Andy Warhol on tour. Right. Basically, all, all modern rock can trace its origins partially back to this album in some way or another. As weird as that sounds, there's this was like a, a jumping off point for, like you already mentioned, punk rock, garage rock, kraut rock, post-punk, mm-hmm. shoegaze, goth, alt, indie music. Everybody in some way was influenced by this album. And then those people went on to influence more people who went on to influence more people. And it all comes back to this one. Yeah. Whether or not they knew that it came back to this point. Yeah. And I think it suffers from two things. The one thing that I already mentioned that if you aren't of the time where this album came out, of course, you're going to look past it because there are albums that sound much better. There are albums that have way more popular songs on them. There are albums that have songs that are, you know, the whole album is more cohesive. Cohesive and and more pleasant to sit down and listen to for uh, you know forty five minutes. Right. The other trick here is that it's it's very much a because of the time that it came out, it hit all the right spots. It was some it was promoted by somebody that was very popular. It had just the right amount of radio play. It had just the right amount of all these things that made it not popular when it very first came out, but sticky enough. Yeah. That yeah, as time went on, people would gra- gravitate back to it and say, "Oh yeah, this is really an interesting." Album yet it sold like shit. The actual numbers, I mean, Brian, you know, you know, said thirty thousand. It's more like sixty. Yeah. Yeah. In reality, by February nineteen sixty nine, it had sold fifty eight thousand four hundred and seventy six copies. Right. At the time, that was actually a fairly decent number. By modern standards, that's nothing. But yeah. the other thing that you nailed on the head there, and I, I don't actually cover this in my notes until the very end, but we'll talk about it for a second here, is so many people latched on to this album, listened to it, didn't like it, but they were told exactly what we're talking about right now. Oh, it's mm-hmm. it's a genesis point. It's a, it's a, you know, an inflection point in music history, blah, blah, blah. So they felt like if they didn't understand it. Then you were being left out. Then they were being left out. And they were, yeah. they were, they didn't get it. They weren't part of that in crowd. So they immediately, oh, of course, yeah, I understand all the, you know, the which is exactly what I did. And yeah, exactly. I, I did it too. I'm yeah. absolutely guilty of that. When I first heard this album in high school, 
I was like, oh yeah, that's it's a great album. Oh yeah, yeah. Andy Warhol, of course, we you know, produced the whole album. It's wonderful. I love every second of it. It's so wonderful. But it, it's not. No. I'm I'm not saying don't listen to it. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not some like mind-bending, like, whoa, it's amazing. Every right. every second of this is just, you know, mind-blowing. It's good in some parts, it's bad in some parts. In some parts, it's really bad. Yeah. And some parts I find unlistenable. Right. But I was 16 still... when it when it came out, hanging out with my brother's older friends. So my brother was Wait a minute. at that point 25. You mean you were 16 when you first heard it? Yes. Okay. You said you were 16 when it came out, and I was like, whoa, have you been lying Sorry. about your age this whole time? I'm tired. It's okay. I was 16 when I first heard it. I was hanging out with my brother's older friends, and he was 25, so his friends were 30, and they're like, you, you, you need to, this is very important. And I'm like, well, you're closer to when it came out. If you're 30 in 1988, you were eight or nine when it came out. I yeah. can't imagine you understood it when it came out, but you were around then, and there was a lot more circling around. But but yeah, I didn't, I, I totally said what you said. I totally said, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely get it. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. All this and stuff about the uh, Venus and Furs. Uh, Oh yeah, of are you course. talking about? What are you talking about? I'm totally yeah, into that totally masochism that. thing. Yeah, you bet. Totally understand all of that. It's just weird. But before we talk about banana mm. or the Velvet Underground and Nico, as it is actually <laughs> called, I have it listed in my notes as the banana. The album. banana. Uh, we should talk about the Velvet Underground for yeah. a minute. Formed in New York City in 1964 by singer and guitarist Lou Reed, John Cale, uh, who could play a little bit of everything, guitarist Sterling Morrison, who played the bass but hated it, and <laughs> drummer Angus McLeese. Uh, McLeese was replaced in 65 by Maureen Mo Tucker, and she would appear on all the band's recordings. Lou Reed at the time had played in a number of shitty garage bands and was working as a songwriter for Pickwick Records. Uh, and he was, according to him, a poor man's Carol King. Hmm. That's a stretch. Like a really <laughs> poor man's Carol King. <laughs> Uh, Reed uh, had met Kale, who had moved to New York City from Wales to study classical music and was fascinated by experimental composers who specialized in what was known as avant-garde. There's that term again. Yeah. The term for a catch-all for things people don't understand. Weird shit. <laughs> avant-garde so, just translates as weird shit. It does. So Kale and Reed determined that they have a similar liking to experimental sounds and alternative tuning, so uh, they rehearsed and, and wrote together often. Do you have more of the back? You have more than that. Oh, oh, yeah. So yeah, I would yeah. say that the first group that um, Lou Reed and uh, John Cale formed was actually called The Primitives with uh, Walter DeMaria. And they were specifically formed to record budget priced recordings. <laughs> so they frequently recorded things live just because they were like, well, we're playing for a group anyways. We're just going to record this and then put it on an album and release it as cheaply as we possibly can. Their most notable song is called The Ostrich, uh, which is actually weirdly an anti dance single. So everybody's heard songs like the Harlem Shuffle or the Macarena. Those are dance songs. They give you the cha-cha shuffle. You know, they, sure. they, they give you the dance steps like move to the left, move to the right, shake your butt, whatever, you know. The Ostrich, if you actually listen to it, it was making fun of those kind of songs. Yeah. It's it very was, uh, yeah. it's very weird. It's not a particularly great song, but it's it's fun. Weirdly though, there's also something else that came out of this. It's called ostrich tuning, uh, where you oh, tune yeah. a guitar. Uh Lou Reed invented this method for tuning guitar where you tune all the strings to the same note. Yeah. So, so all E or all A. Yeah. And it's uh it's used heavily on the ostrich. So that is and one thing that's pretty notable out of it. It's used on this record too, yeah. on, on a Later song and it sounds yeah. terrible. I'm just saying. Before they settled on uh, uh, the Velvet Underground, 
they changed their name to a couple of different things. First, they were uh, the Warlocks. Yeah. And then they were the Falling Spikes. Mm. Uh, finally, they landed on the Velvet Underground, which is taken from the title of a book by the same name by Michael Lee. Mm. Uh, the book is all about the sexual underground of the US in the early 1960s. Wikipedia uses the word paraphilia, mm. uh, which means the experience of sexual arousal to atypical objects, situations, fantasies, behaviors, or individuals. Never heard that one before, but I kind of love it. The book like, focuses really heavily on things like spouse swapping, group sex, orgies, homosexual activities, bondage, and sadomasochism. You know, yes. deviance. Right. The, the guys in the band said it was evocative of underground cinema and yeah. fitting because Reed had already written a song that would appear on their first album that explored the se sexual revolution uh, and a song called Venus and Furs that we'll talk about. And shortly after that, they began to rehearse and perform in New York City. Uh, mm -hmm. Their first paying gig for the whopping fee of $75 was at Summit High School in New Jersey. That's awesome. Yeah. Playing the old high school gig. <laughs> However, Angus McLeese decided that uh, that was selling out. And yeah. uh, he didn't quit. want a paying gig. He quit the band in protest. Uh, and like you said, he was replaced with uh, Mo Tucker shortly thereafterwards. She's a weird player. If you oh, ever dude. See she plays her drum standing up, yeah. bass drum on its side, and also completely absent of cymbals of yeah. any kind. She says she's even come out and said she doesn't like cymbals. Yeah. She's, she's circumvented this by using trash cans to kind of highlight the more trebly sound instead of cymbals. Yes. Like, why not just use cymbals then? So, so whatever. Weird, but yeah, I guess whatever. And the band quickly began assembling a following as well as a regular paying gig at a place called the Cafe Bazaar. How fitting. In late 65, though, the band formed a relationship that would completely change their fortunes and their trajectory when they were introduced to Andy Warhol by mm -hmm. filmmaker Barbara Rubin. Uh, Warhol became their manager and suggested that they use German-born singer Nico, real name Krista Pafken, for a few of their songs. And because of Warhol's profile, he was able to secure a recording contract for them and gave them general autonomy over their sound, although not completely. Yeah. I would say he also convinced them to join his multimedia roadshow called The Exploding Plastic in Inevitable. Which was originally called the Erupting Plastic yeah. Inevitable. <laughs> and there are some videos of these performances out there, and it looks fucking weird, man. Yeah, it's there's, film, there's all kinds music, of 16 art. millimeter projection. Yeah. They're performing on stage, but there's like strobe lights and shit. And it was so bad, like the, the band had to wear sunglasses on stage because the lights messed them up so much, just standing yeah. there under these strobes for multiple minutes. And because of that, it became like a look, <laughs> like it was. It was the it's, sunglasses. It's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Just the whole thing is is crazy. But that was Andy Warhol. For a while, though, McLeese must not have minded the commercial side of it anymore because he returned to the band for a yeah. few months while Neil was dealing with a bout of hepatitis, most likely contracted from a dirty heroin needle. Yeah. According to Reed, McLeese desperately wanted to be back in the band. Success will do that for you. Yeah, right. But Reed forbade it. Forbidded it? Forbade it? Forbade it. Insisting that his replacement was only temporary. But in 1966, April of 66, the band entered Scepter Studios in New York City to record this album we're going to talk about today the velvet underground and nico otherwise known as the banana album yeah this was actually recorded twice so there's the scepter studios recording from new york city and there's another recording on the ttg studios in los angeles that was only for three of the songs for three of the songs yeah but nobody is quite sure why those songs were re-recorded in los angeles there's my guess is the studio sounded better possibly? than the shitty studio that they were in <laughs> Because it was a dump. I mean, it was a dump, that's for sure. But it's it's very weird that nobody would say that. Like, because everywhere, over and over, that thing was repeated. Like, nobody's sure why it was recorded 
started in Los Angeles. And it's like, well, I mean, you couldn't find another better studio in New York City. I don't know. I don't know, I don't just know seems, why they do that stuff. But the album was recorded over four days for a grand sum of somewhere between $1,500 and $3,000. Yeah. I mean, that's on the cheap. Mm-hmm. Even at the time, that was still pretty cheap. Andy Warhol is credited as the sole producer on this album, though he really didn't do much more than pay for the recording sessions and make some suggestions. And design the cover. Yeah, and design the cover, that's true. Uh, Tom Wilson, Norman Dolph, Ami Hayden, and John Licata did most of the production and engineering work on this album. Mm-hmm. Names not, that are lost to history. Yeah, right. Uh, they're not credited <laughs> outside of, you know, extended notes and things. They were not credited until, I think, the 45th anniversary re-release finally put credits to them on there. Thanks. Uh, it was a really Originally released on March 12, 1967. However, there was a huge problem. The rear cover featured a picture of the band with an upside down projection of actor Eric Emerson above them. Projection was taken from an Andy Warhol movie titled Chelsea Girls. Eric Emerson sued for $500,000, which is about <laughs> $4.5 million in 2023 dollars, to have the image removed. You know uh, why he did that, right? Because hmm. he had been arrested oh, yeah, for and drug was in use. all kinds of drug problems. So yeah. he was trying he to get some money. quick cash and just a settlement. Sue for $500,000, settle for $100,000. Yeah. And basically MGM said, fuck off. We're not doing that. (laughs) So instead, they canceled the distribution of the album, pulled as many from shelves as they possibly could. And where they couldn't, they had sent out stickers that went on the back to cover up the picture of it. Big black sticker. (laughs) The problem with this was it killed any buzz that the record had begun to gain. It was basically re-released in June of 1967. And by that time, guess what had just come out? Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. (laughs) But that so, was going to be big no matter what. Yeah. I mean, we gonna, knew that was, was going to be Beatles. huge. That was going to be huge. But at but, least had it come out in March, there's a chance that they could have gotten some sales in before Sgt. Pepper's came out. That's true. If it came out basically head to head with Sgt. Pepper's and somebody had, you know, whatever an album cost, five or $10 at the time, I can get Sgt. Pepper's or I can get this weird thing with a banana on it. I'm getting Sgt. Pepper's. getting Sgt. Pepper's. So you said it was released March 12, 67 to mm-hmm. fairly instant commercial and financial failure yeah. and mixed critical reviews. The the fact that most of the songs on the record are controversial led to immediate radio station bans and yeah. magazines refused to carry ads for it. Other people also blame Verve Records, which did little in the way of promoting it of any kind. Some critics called it haunting and powerful and sophisticated folk rock, while others call it a blatant lift of the stones and distressingly like early Dylan. That's the worst. <laughs> that's, that's, that's distressingly the worst like early Dylan. That, that is hurts. such a good line. <laughs> uh, the album entered the Billboard charts at 199, end up selling 30,000 the first five years, but a number that's been amended to 60,000. Yeah. But the years have changed perception of the record. Oh, yeah. It is now considered one of the most influential albums of all time, regularly cited by bands as one of the reasons they decided to make music in the first place. It appears near the top of almost every best albums of all time list, with Rolling Stone placing it anywhere from 13 to 23 on its top 500. Robert Christigau has naturally reappraised it, saying in 1977, after bashing it in 1967, that, quote, it is crude, thin, and pretentious, but people just don't get it, and it never stops getting better better. Furthering my point about myself, I just don't get it. I know it has influenced bands that I've listened to for years, but to my ears, it's fairly close to unlistenable in places. And like I mentioned, I have tried for years to get it, to accept it, to hear it for its influence. But a movie, let's say a movie from the 1940s that supposedly influenced how George Lucas made movies, I would rather watch the Lucas movie than the movie from the 40s. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's that's essentially what I'm trying to say. Who the 
they influenced did it better. And that's who I'd prefer to listen to. Oh, yeah. So this is going to be fun, but because I'm not completely sure how this is going to go yet. So. I would I would 100 percent. I think that's a great way to put it. And it's something that I had never really thought about when writing these notes. But that's true is the stuff that it influenced is probably better and more listenable because they had the time to say, hey, that was OK. Let's make it better versus, hey, we're just going to try this stuff and see what sticks. Right. And and, you know, if you say like The Cure or you say, you know, whatever punk band was influenced by them, they also weren't just influenced by the Velvet Underground. They would pick you pick sounds, you pick elements, yeah. you incorporate that into your own songwriting and make you, maybe you pull something from the Beatles and you pull something and that together, that package makes it different. So I totally understand what its role is. It's just hard to listen to in places. Yeah. You know, we already talked about uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon album mm-hmm. cover. This is definitely right up there as probably one of the most famous album covers out there. 100%. Instantly recognizable and iconic to anyone who has followed music to any degree. Yeah. Andy Warhol designed the artwork. It's a bright yellow banana on a white background. Right. Below is the name Andy Warhol because- Bigger you know, than the band's name. Yeah. The band's name isn't even on the original front cover. It just says Andy Warhol in letters on it. And then up near the top in very tiny letters, it says, peel slowly and see. Oh yeah. Because um, it originally had a, the banana a sticker is actually a over sticker, the banana. And if you peel it off, you see a flesh colored banana underneath, Yeah, which is definitely not a penis. No, no. It's, it's a banana. definitely a banana and not a pink penis. It's, it's a banana. <laughs> but as you might expect, this would eventually be cost prohibitive. Oh yeah. So uh, they and it would subsequently be released with just the yellow banana. Yeah. It actually, they needed a special machine to manufacture the ones with the stickers on them. And MGM paid for those costs up front. They just ate the cost of that because they were like, well, this is an Andy Warhol art piece and it's being promoted by Andy Warhol. So even if the band sucks, people will still buy it to own a piece of Andy Warhol art. <laughs> Weird. But that covers the subject of a lawsuit, Yeah, obviously, many years later, because Andy Warhol's foundation, who felt that they owned the cover art, was sued by the remaining members of the Velvet Underground for licensing the cover to companies designing cell phone covers, Yeah, <laughs> which was all settled out of court. <laughs> there are a few reissues of the vinyl that have the sticker on them, so you can still occasionally find them out there as a reissue. Oh, they're super rare? Oh. Yeah, they're pretty yeah. rare. The originals with the sticker still on them are, are very rare and go yeah. for thousands of dollars. We already talked about the back cover lawsuit a little bit, but the back cover also says the Velvet Underground and Nico across the top with produced by Andy Warhol underneath in huge letters because he is a fucking self-promotion machine. Andy Warhol? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Across the bottom are pictures of the five members of the band and above them is a larger picture of them performing with that projection of Eric Emerson above them. It should be noted that with all the self-promotion that Andy Warhol did with this album, uh, the forceful inclusion of Nico on several tracks, the delays this album incurred, the band uh, were not particularly happy with him because of all that stuff. Uh, Lou Reed in particular was very upset with him and fired Warhol as the band's manager shortly after this album came out. Uh, they hired a new manager named Steven Sesnick, uh, who convinced the group to move towards a more commercial direction. Nico was also forced out of the, the band shortly after this, and she began a career as a solo artist. Her debut album was called Chelsea Girl, uh, released in October 67, uh, featured some songs written by Velvet Underground members. So apparently, even though she was forced out of the band, there was not any bad blood there, which I think Mm -hmm. is good. So Matthew, I know that you've noticed, and I'm Mm -hmm. sure most of our listeners have noticed too, that I keep returning to albums from the 1960s on a lot of episodes. Yep. And what I was talking about earlier is exactly why I keep returning to these albums. So when I was in high school, I I was not particularly into music. Music was just something that I would, I had 
some albums that I liked and bands that I liked and things, but I wasn't like deeply into music. And uh, I kind of started to think, you know, well, maybe I should be, maybe this is something that I want to learn more about and, and maybe, you know, I should. And a lot of the things that I started to find at the time, and this would have been late nineties, early two thousands, all said the same thing. Like, oh, you know, all, all, you know, grunge leads back to punk, which leads back to, you know, the sixties, which leads back to albums like this, you know, or rock leads back to, you know, like uh, heavier rock from like the seventies. And then that leads back to this type of music from the sixties. And that's where I started to sort of look at these albums and say, okay, there's all this music from the sixties that somehow turned into the stuff that I like to listen to from the eighties and nineties and early two thousands. How did that happen? Mm. And so I started trying to find the threads. I started trying to trace them back and say, okay, if I like Nirvana, who influenced Nirvana? And then I would go and find the bands that had influenced Nirvana. And thankfully I was living in the kind of the first generation where I didn't have to go to a record store and buy records. I literally logged into Napster and was like, oh, I looked on, you know, some webpage and they said that this band influenced Nirvana. Let me download their whole catalog and listen to all of it. Shame on me. I know. Uh, I put Lars Ulrich in the poorhouse. It was me personally. (laughs) But because of that, it meant that I got this quick music education and I could trace everything back to where it started. And albums like this, even though, you know, like we said, I don't think it's a particularly amazing mind bending album, but it is a Genesis album, not the band Mm -hmm. Genesis. It's it's an actual Genesis album. It's one of the albums that so much music learned from and progressed from and can trace its roots back to. I mean, this is this is the grandfather of most modern bands right here. I'd and say for that's that reason alone, accurate. I think that it's important to listen to it. Whether you like it or not, that's up to you. Uh, exactly. I'm sure you're about to hear from both of us uh, how we felt about it. That's but should true. We, uh, should we first take a quick little break and come back and uh, do a track by track? Sure. All right. We'll see you in a sec. So we start off with Sunday Morning, and it opens almost like a children's song uh, with John Kell playing a Celesta uh, for this this fascinating like ethereal effect, which actually turns out to kind of be an accident. It was just floating around in the studio, and they, he was like, oh, this is fun, and he started playing with it, and then it became the beginning of his song. Right. Add in some of Reed's typical dirty guitar sound. Yeah. And you actually have an, an excellent song. Too bad I don't feel that way about the whole record. But <laughs> this song is fine. And it's at least the third song I know by this title, by the way. Oh. And it stands out. I think there's one by uh, No Doubt and one by Maroon 5. Okay. So I don't know what, what's the deal with Sunday Morning. But it stands out because of how much different it sounds than the rest of the songs on the record. This yeah. was the last song recorded for the album. And it's much more lush, has professional production, and honestly, has the makings of of a single. Yeah. And I would say right off the bat, this is my favorite song on the record. This is the one that I could see where bands further down the road were actually influenced melodically by them. Yeah. I've seen it described as dream pop, and I would say that's pretty accurate. Oh, yeah. The song was originally written by Reed for Nico to sing, but in the end, he took the lead and she sings backup. Concept of the song was suggested by Warhol, who said, just make a song about paranoia, <laughs> which Reed thought was a really good idea. And it sounds like a long 
long night of partying took its toll, and John Cale echoed that sentiment in a 2005 interview where he said, Lou and I had been up all night on crank as usual, so we decided to visit one of his old Syracuse college pals. Unfortunately, this guy's upper-middle-class wife didn't appreciate visits from old college pals high on amphetamines at 3 a.m. who wanted to play live music. So he had a guitar which Lou picked up, and the evening inspired him to write this song. We see this weird dichotomy a lot, too, where this is such a happy, upbeat-sounding song, and like I said, it kind of sounds like a children's song, and it covers topics like depression and paranoia. Yeah. See if you guys can uh, pick that out from some of these lyrics. Just a restless feeling by my side. Early like a lot of these songs, as we will see, it has been covered by 15 to 20 different artists over yeah. the years, ranging from Matthew Sweet to OMD to what I am sure is a rousing 45-minute version by the jam band Fish. <laughs> Wake me when that shit's over. Oh, my God. Oh, man, I can't the, do it. The 12-minute guitar solo blew my mind. I don't know. I went out, pissed, and had a sandwich, came back. The song's still going. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm waiting for the man. Really? Yeah. It's a song about buying heroin in Harlem. <laughs> it's your pretty standard song about yeah, buying you know. heroin from your dealer. And not the only song on this record about buying and or consuming heroin. No, it's not. You would almost think maybe some members of the band were doing that. Mm, mm. That seems a bit assumptive to me. Mm, maybe. The song and several on the record are what is commonly referred to from this period as drone songs. Yeah. Meaning, A, there's no bridge, no change of melody between the verses and the chorus and it just kind of drones on and on it's clunky it's clanky and for the music fan it's completely boring because it doesn't go anywhere it doesn't resolve itself it doesn't land anywhere it doesn't take you anywhere it's just a beeline straight through and it sounds like this So please don't misunderstand me, because listening to it, I can hear hundreds of bands through the years in their sound. Their influence is clear to me. But all those other bands have done it so much better than this sound-wise, and like that's, I think that's what we're talking about. Yeah. This song is ranked as the 81st best song in music history by Rolling Stone. And I'm sorry, mm. but that is just a load of crap. It's a fine song, but that's it. And I think it's irresponsible to say something is the greatest of anything just because it is influential 
influential. Its influence, no matter how wide, should not be the only calculation in determining its worth. I mean, doesn't it also have to be good, not just influential? And that's part of my issue with it. Like, there there should be more calculus involved than just saying, well, a lot of other bands copied it. Yeah. So it's important. Okay. Like we mentioned, it's a song about waiting for a smack dealer, the man to which he refers. And he's waiting for him in Harlem, like he said, in the seedier parts of town. And it has some questionable racial references, yeah. you know, suggesting there are no white people there. Well, hey, white boy, what are you doing uptown? <laughs> One thing to keep in mind, too, is uh, Harlem in the late 60s was not like Harlem in the late 2020s or in oh, the early 2020s. I, I understand. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I know you do. I'm just uh, from the audience. If you're like, oh, yeah, Harlem, it's great. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful neighborhood to live in. And no, no, I was Harlem, in Harlem last year. Harlem was a neighborhood you went to get robbed and stabbed or to buy drugs. And that was about it. Pretty much. But to which Lou Reed replies that that was the furthest thing from his mind, chasing their women. Yeah. He's just waiting on his drug dealer. And I wonder how much of the substance one could purchase for $26 in 1966, since that's the number Ooh. he throws out. I also wonder what the same amount would get you now. How has inflation affected the illegal drug business, mm. one wonders? Does it match regular inflation? Are there numbers for this market? Because I would like to see them. The drugflation market? Dr- yeah. I would also like to add that the far superior version of this song was recorded and released by David Bowie in 1967. Oh, yeah. You know this story, right? Yeah. Who obtained a of copy course. of the recording yeah. before it was released and went it and recorded and released his own version before the Velvet Underground version ever came out. Yeah. Kenneth Pitt, his manager, actually got him a, an acetate copy of the then unreleased whole album. Bowie heard this and went to his band at the time called The Buzz and told them they were going to learn it. He said, quote, we learned Waiting for the Man right then and there, and we were playing it on stage within a week. Yeah. 60s, man. It's a crazy time. He recalled in 2003 interview with Vanity Fair, quote, amusingly, not only was I to cover a Velvet song before anyone else in the world, I actually did it before the album came out. Now that's the essence of mod. It is the essence of mod. Also, Bowie had no idea that this song was about heroin. Yeah. He misinterpreted the lyrics and thought it was about a gay encounter, according to his longtime producer, Tony Visconti. (laughs) Whoops. Ah, I misread that one. Tony Visconti told biographer Nicholas Pegg, quote, A very young David Bowie didn't yet know that the man in Harlem parlance meant the drug dealer, so he naturally assumed it was a gay encounter involving money. (laughs) That's amazing. That's so like, he mistook um, the line, uh, I'm just looking for a good friendly behind instead of I'm just looking for a dear, (laughs) dear friend of mine. (laughs) That's so great. A good friendly behind, Uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Happy Pride Month. Uh, (laughs) Jimmy Page also made a similar claim. He said, quote, I'm pretty certain we, meaning the Yardbirds, were the first people to cover the Velvet Underground. Several sources, including the drummer Jim McCarthy, uh, sorry, McCarty, suggested the Yardbirds learned I'm waiting for the man during November 18th to 20th, 1966, when they and the Velvet Underground were performing in Detroit. However, this is actually contradicted by a performance of the song with Jeff Beck and Chris Dreha on guitars and, and Page on bass, which would take place sometime between June 21st, 66, which was Page's first gig with the band, and October 30th, 66, which was Beck's last gig with the band. Well, 
during that time. You can't have everything, Jimmy Page. Right. Uh, also, thank you, Wikipedia footnote nerds, for those exacting dates. Like, well, they had to learn the song between November 21st, 1966 and June 30th, 1966, because otherwise uh, Jeff Beck wouldn't have been available. He had a ingrown toenail that would have prevented him from singing the correct. It's like, Jesus, well, There's guys. a Led Zeppelin gatekeeper somewhere going, oh, I'm going right? track that. That didn't happen on that oh, day. Oh, no, it did not. No, it did not. No. Femme Fatale. Ooh, one of the three songs on the record sung by Nico. Mm-hmm. And does anyone else think that she can't sing very well? Because that is that just me? Uh, I'm not a fan. It's hard to listen to because her voice is so wispy to begin with and weak, but it's also got this strangely affected French accent. I'm all thrown off. I like the melody of the song. It's pretty good, but her voice just doesn't, uh, just doesn't do it for me. The song was written by Lou Reed at the request of Andy Warhol about his muse and superstar Edie Sedgwick. Mm-hmm. Another casualty of the 60s. Uh, She was beautiful, burgeoning superstar before she got trapped in drugs and she eventually overdosed on prescription meds at the age of 28. That's terrible. I've listened to some other versions of this song sung by Lou Reed, and those versions are much more listenable to me anyway. And Nico's voice is just, it's weird. Yeah. It's not a pop singing voice. You know what I mean? It doesn't sound, it just doesn't fit to me either. And she's interesting story too, right? After the release of this album, she became uh, pretty good friends with Jim Morrison, who encouraged her to do her own solo material. And she released seven albums of middling quality and performance. I tried listening to one of them, the aptly titled the end mm-hmm. due to her friendship with the Doors lead singer. And it wasn't great. It was very forgettable. <laughs> it was a challenge to listen to. Tragically, she died as well in 1988 at the age of 49 after being involved in a bike accident while on holiday in Ibiza. Mm. That sucks. So, uh, in case anybody does not know, a femme fatale is an attractive and seductive woman, especially one who is likely to cause distress or disaster to a man who becomes involved with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a common trope from the noir films of the 30s and 40s. And this song sounds a little bit like this. She's just a little tease See the way she walks Hear the way she talks You're written in her book Your number 37, have a look She's gone to smile to make you so uh, Sterling Morrison always said of the title of this song, quote, Nico always hated that. Nico, whose native language is minority French, would say, the name of this song is Ham Fatal. <laughs> Lou and I would sing it out, out our um, way. Nico hated that. I said, Nico, hey, it's my title. I'll pronounce it my way. Yeah, you tell him. Ham um, Fatal. I love the spelling. F-A-H-M, F-A-T-A-H-L in that quote. Ham oh, Fatal. The, the phonetic spelling. Ham um, Venus in Furs, Matthew. Yeah, one of the three songs that would end up being recorded in L.A., mm-hmm. uh, re-recorded in L.A., and one of the many controversial songs due to the subject matter, again, i.e. sadomasochism, bondage, and submission, which in a pop song in 1966 was a pretty big deal. Yeah. The song is named for and based on Leopold von Sackermoss Mass 6, 1870 novella Venus in Furs, in which the male main character seeks to be enslaved by his fur-adorned lover. Yeah. 
And the lyrics for the song are, they're not messing around, right? You know, kiss the boot of shiny, shiny leather, yeah. shiny leather in the dark, tongue of thongs, the belt that does await you, strike dear mistress and cure his heart. Yeah, that, that, that'll that do it. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely, I only read some quotes from the book, but uh, it sounds fascinating. <laughs> it's uh, interesting. Have you actually read it? I've read parts of it. Okay. I'd say chunks of it. There's a time in, or two in the song where he speaks of Severin. Uh, he says, Severin, Severin, speak so slightly. Severin is the character in the book, Venus and Furs, being punished by the dominatrix. Her name is Wanda. Reed is acting, in this case, as the narrator of the story, Gregor. It's an interesting story. It's another. It's an interesting song. It's another that is considered a drone song. Yeah. One of the most recognized of their catalog. Lou Reed plays two guitars on this song, a normally tuned lead guitar and another guitar in the ostrich tuning, as we mentioned. I'm not entirely sure what that sound accomplishes, but, you know, there you go. There you have it. It's still a little mystery. I tried to figure out, like, what makes it sound different, but... It just sounds kind of noisy. And it, as one might expect, due to the subject matter, the song has been used in a number of TV shows and films... Sound-wise, it's a little noisy, and I could do without the constant electric viola yeah. that plays throughout the whole thing. And to me, this song just screams 1960s at me. Yeah. Like, like hardcore gets in my face and screams 60s. It's got that discordant string section. Reed's voice just dates the song right away. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, because that's when it's from, but it just yells at me, 60s. Yeah. And it immediately opens with that, uh, that droning electric viola, and it sounds like this. I will say, though, in my research for this album, I did come across a quast. A quast. I did come across. I did come across. <laughs> I did come across what might be the best description for a song I have ever seen in my entire life. And it's for What's this song. That? So I I found it on Wikipedia. It's taken from the essay Venus and Furs by the Velvet Underground by Eric Kirsten. And he says, quote, there is no intro or buildup to the song. The track starts as if you opened a door to a decadent Marrakesh S&M opium den, a blast of air-conditioned Middle Eastern menace with a plodding beat that's the missing link between Bolero and Led Zeppelin's version of When the Levee Breaks. I thought that description was very good. It's good. It's just a giant word salad, too. It's a word salad, but I thought it was a good word salad. Something about salad. it just really struck me, right? Uh, run, run, run. Run, run, run. It's written on the back of an envelope by Lou Reed while the band was on their way to a gig at Cafe Bazaar. Right. Maybe it was influenced by people on the streets as they yeah. drove by, or perhaps it is the people that he knew. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a very visual song, uh, as a very colorful cast of characters. Uh, teenage Mary, Margarita Passion, Seasick Sarah, and Beardless, Har Beardless Harry, uh, all of whom are engaged in the act of buying drugs or using drugs. Mm -hmm. This seems to be the nascent theme of the record. And most of them don't meet great fate. 
waits. A seasick Sarah clearly overdoses, and it devastated her guardian angels who were clearly asleep on the job. <laughs> the song is very much delivered like Dylan in the verses and choruses. Yeah. There isn't as much experimentation on this song as on many of the others until the guitar solo. Yeah. Which is frankly just a fucking mess of notes and feedback and junk. And maybe that's what people like about it. Maybe people like that it sounds like he's just randomly hitting notes. And again, I see the value of the record. I just don't like it musically. It's probably the reason that I never, or that I think that Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols isn't that it's all that it's cracked up to be. Hmm. It changed the face of music for sure, but not because it was great, just because it changed the formula. And I feel like that's the same thing with this record. The formula got changed for making music going forward, but the the album itself isn't all that great. Yeah. So I so, think we need two lists, influential records and best records of all time instead of fair. combining the two together. So, uh, you know, you already spoke a little bit about those characters, but uh, Mikhail yeah. Gilmore wrote in Rolling Stone in 1979, so basically 12 years after this album came out. Quote, Lou Reed doesn't just write about squalid characters. He's al- he allows them to leer and breathe in their own voices, and he colors familiar landscapes through their own eyes. In the process, Reed has created a body of music that comes as close to disclosing the parameters of human loss and recovery as we're likely to find. That qualifies him, in my opinion, as one of the few real heroes rock and roll has raised. Mm, okay. So uh, let's see what you guys think of the squalor. Beardless Harry, what a waste. Couldn't even get Say small town case Rode the trolleys Down to 47 Figured he was good You get himself to heaven Cause that or Run, 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 run Take a dagger too Run, 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 run Gypsy death in you Tell you what to do So then, like you said, Matthew, it rolls into this guitar solo that is best described probably as frantic. Um, I agree with you. So many places I saw everybody saying, oh, Run 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 has this great Lou Reed guitar solo. Oh, it's so amazing. And it's, what? It, it certainly is a guitar solo. I mean, see what yeah. you guys think. Yeah, I just don't understand how good guitar is played clearly. Yeah. I mean, again, I, what's crazy too is Lou Reed would go on to play some amazing guitar. 100%. I mean, one of the guitar gods of rock and roll. Absolutely. But I don't think he's there at this point. I don't think he's there yet. No, I don't think so either. All Tomorrow's Parties. 
This song actually cracked the UK top 40. Ooh, it did. Hit number 38. Wow. One of the three songs uh, sung by Nico, allegedly, uh, was Andy Warhol's favorite song by the band. Reed wrote the song about one of the members of the factory. That's the group of the people, a uh, group of people that were always partying and hanging out with Warhol. He wrote it about a girl named Daryl, described by John Cale as a pretty petite blonde with three kids, two of which had been taken away. So I guess Reed was super observant because his lyric writing is very observational. And he does have a way of capturing something very specifically. This feels like I'm looking in on one of those parties in the 60s. The lines, what costume shall the poor girl wear to all tomorrow's parties? For Thursday's child is Sunday's clone, for whom none will go mourning, a blackened shroud, a hand-me-down gown of rags and silk, a costume fit for one who sits and cries for all tomorrow's parties. I mean, for all the not great I have said about this record, and I'm not, I'm trying not to be negative, this is some very excellent lyric writing. Yeah. And remember what I said earlier about the other song, Screaming 60s? Yeah, this one screams even louder. Apparently, I meant up to that song because who knows what the rest of the record holds at this point. I was kind of expecting Nico to start singing White Rabbit for a second. Yeah. Like Jefferson Airplane. It, it very kind of, much feels like that same kind of a, a, it's, lyri- it's uh, so a weird. musical theme. Yeah. The theme and the story elements are also also partially inspired by, I should say, a character called Thursday's Child, which is taken from the nursery rhyme Monday's Child, which goes, Monday's Child is fair of face. Tuesday's Child is full of grace. Wednesday's Child is full of woe. Thursday's Child has far to go. Friday's Child is loving and giving. Saturday's Child works hard for a living. And the child born on the Sabbath day is Bonnie and Blythe, good and gay. So the meaning of that obviously is very open to interpretation, but most people suggest that Thursday's child can refer to someone who has a long way to travel, literally or figuratively, or someone who might be a little naive about life because they haven't experienced a lot of it yet. Mm. And that makes, that's very fitting for somebody who, you know, had three children and had two of them taken away. Right. Songs, like you said, more directly about the party lifestyle that was, and the people that surrounded Andy Warhol. It sounds like this. What costume shall the poor girl wear To all tomorrow's parties Why silks and dreams of yesterday's gowns To all tomorrow's parties White Rabbit. <laughs> Your voice dropped, Grace Slick. When are you picking that record, by the way? Which one? Surrealistic Pillow by Jefferson Airplane. Oh, I'm not from, <laughs> honestly, I'm not super familiar with it. So that's got White Rabbit on it. It's got uh, somebody to love. It's a classic. Maybe I should. <laughs> fits with my M.O., so... With plenty of psychedelia there. So, <laughs> as a side note, this is one of the first pop songs in history to use a prepared piano. So, I guess they attach a string of paper clips or something else to the wires, and when struck, would make that noticeably clanky noise in the background. I like that innovation. I think yeah. that's great. I've also heard of people doing prepared pianos with nails, thumbtacks, screws, where you actually put the screw in a position where it, it has, like, it's this very fine-threaded screw. So, as the uh, piano... Uh, not wire. Yeah, piano wire. As the piano wire vibrates, it vibrates up and down the screw and makes an interesting noise. Mm. Should I do that tonight? Should I do that with my, my grand piano? Yeah, Anything why not? Heather or mine? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with the piano? Oh, I prepared it. I It's prepared now. <laughs> sure, she'll love it. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, heroin, Matthew. 
You got any heroin? You got any heroin? <laughs> Uh, it's a song about meth. Yeah, I'm just kidding. It's, it's a song about LSD. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, probably uh, the song I knew best going into this because it was so controversial and therefore the one that I needed to listen to several times. And I don't think there has ever been a more visceral description in song of someone using heroin. And so many people read into this song. And my feeling is that he wrote the song, like a lot of his songs, from an observational point of view without taking a moral stance on the subject. Yes. I don't think he is saying go out and use heroin because the effects are so great, but more of these are the effects, and they aren't all good. The line is, heroin be the death of me, heroin it's my wife and it's my life, because a main line into my vein leads to a center in my head, and then I'm better off than dead. I would say more than anything, he's saying how it takes over your life, and there's nothing more important in the junkie's life than the next fix. And a lot of times, death would be an easier solution than trying to survive in between the time being high and the time getting the next fix. Repeatedly, people would come up to Lou Reed after a VU show and tell him that they just shot up to this song, and that deeply disturbed him because he felt that maybe he had glamorized it in a way, so he was hesitant to include this song in the live set. Apparently, this is one of the songs he wrote when he was a songwriter for Pickwick Records. Uh, he said they would lock him in a room with some other guys, and those guys would write 10 surf songs, and then he wrote this, and he said, hey, I've got something for you, and the label said, never gonna happen. Never <laughs> gonna happen. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> And by the way, Lou Reed was most likely 17 to 18 years old yeah. when he wrote this song. That's ludicrous to me to have that kind of insight into such an intense experience at that age. That's nuts. Going back to the thing where you said that, you know, he was worried that he had influenced people. There's a story that's fl floating around that I couldn't find any sources on, but where apparently Lou Reed was at an AA meeting sometime later in life. And he was confronted by a guy who was also in the AA meeting. And he said, what the fuck are you doing here? I'm here because of you because you made it sound so great and I tried it because of you Ugh. and now I am an addict because of what you told me was a good thing to do and there's different versions of that story and I don't know it might be a you know it might not be true it might be right you know, just that's awful but yeah something else I thought was super interesting here is that Lou suggests that his addiction is still a decision yeah so he suggests that he keeps doing it even though he knows it's going to kill him and he's may consciously making the decision to do it not the traditional thing where we think of addiction as this is something they can't stop doing because they need it because their body has become literally addicted to it mm. but he's saying no no it's a decision I could stop if I wanted to but I'm not going to. Yep. In Acid for the Children, Flea's autobiography, mm -hmm. Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers, he essentially says the same thing. While Anthony Kiedis was like strung out and addicted and had to be fixed all the time, Flea used occasionally on and off, but just would stop, yeah. would just stop and just do it recreationally. And like, how do you do heroin recreationally? <laughs> but apparently some people can. So let's try it and see what happens. Well, there you go. <laughs> Nope, didn't so, work out for me. One thing that I do love about this song, though, is that the beat of the song follows what happens to your heart when you do heroin. So it starts out really slow, and as the singer sings about hitting the needle, the beat picks up and goes a lot faster, just like your heartbeat when you're doing heroin. And then it slows back down, and you have to take another hit, and then it speeds back up again. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like this. I'm 
So I think this is also a good time to talk a little bit more about Mo Tucker. Mm. Her drumming on this, she's like a machine. She's so like, Mm -hmm. and like you said earlier, she has a very bizarre drumming style. She stands up most of the time when she plays the drums. She doesn't play a cymbal. She usually plays her bass drum face down. Yeah, I don't get it. She's a completely self-taught drummer too. Uh, She didn't start playing drums until she was 19 years old. She was a huge fan of a Nigerian musician named Babatunde Olatunji. Oh, who old Olatunji. Yeah. He was a Nigerian drummer and social activist who has a fascinating story, by the way, if you want to go look him up, uh, but also of Bo Diddley and the Rolling Stones. In fact, they inspired her to become a drummer, so she bought a secondhand kit and taught herself how to drum. Rolling who? Huh? Yeah, Rolling. I've never heard of him before. Who? Yeah. Ro- yeah. Otunji. Yeah. I know him well, Otunji. but I don't know that other Rolling band. whatever. Never heard of him. <laughs> she, uh, she attended Ithaca College, but dropped out after a couple semesters, and she was actually working as a key punch operator at IBM, and some people have later suggested that the reason she could keep beat so well was because she was a key punch operator, so she was going so she learned to keep beat almost perfectly because of the key punch machine however i wanted to bring this up in particular yes robert christigau did give her credit for something that i think is very important and i actually totally agree with him on one point all right go ahead i would say that mo is one of the primary influences on the sound of percussion in the punk music movement she came up with the like these simple beats that kind of harkened back to the the early rock sound of the 40s and late 40s and early 50s and they're played very simply there's not a whole lot of like finesse to them there's not a whole lot of like no offense there's not a whole lot of particularly talented drumming there but it is very on beat and it is very so i will i will give you a pass there and say it requires more research (laughs) (laughs) all right fair enough uh, however, of course, our old friend Robert Christgau did it in the shittiest, most deriding way possible that you could. But did he say, like, she's a pretty good drummer for a girl? Well, he said Mo. He spelled <laughs> it without the E, so he spelled her name wrong. Mo was a great drummer in a minimalist, limited, autodidactic way that I think changed music history. She is where the punk notion of how the beat works begins. What a... <laughs> Right? So she was a shitty drummer and she was really not that great, but she's invented punk music. What? Like, <sighs> and why did he have to say autodidactic? Because he's a dick. You can just shut up. So there's just two chords in the whole song. Yeah. And the temp- tempo changes that you talked about are weird and uncomfortable, making the whole song, lyrics and music, all very unsettling. Yeah. And that's the whole point. There's not a lot going on in the song except that constant droning sound that crawls up my spine and heads right for my brain and drives me nuts because I I hear that and that's what I hear and Lou Reed singing over top of it (laughs) well Matthew (sighs) yeah there she goes again I know you're going to reference this, but it's not the song by The Laws. It's not. Or the later cover by Sixpence None the Richer. No, it is not. 
Although the call and response in some parts of this song make me feel that the laws were more than liberal in their use of this song as an influence. Oh, yeah. It's kind of bananas. <laughs> see what I did there? <laughs> see what you did there? <laughs> uh, that so far this album has had songs about heroin, sadomasochism, more heroin, crazy parties, and now we have a song about a very hardened prostitute. Yeah. Clearly good at her job, but suffers the abuse you would imagine is commonplace in that profession. Nevertheless, my growing opinion is that this is an album isn't it isn't so much influential for the songs themselves or the sounds themselves, but the subject matter and how it's presented. These are Ooh. things that no one was writing about. And I think that is the bigger deal. Writing about things that were controversial without dropping an F-bomb, without overtly mentioning heroin, except for the name of the song. <laughs> like, I think that may be where the underlying influence came from is that that pushing music forward because it was Beatles weren't going to say stuff like this true but they were going to allude to it but not be as direct it's an interesting record again that still requires I think more more research and I know volumes have been written about it but just listening to it through you know you get softened on certain things I don't yeah. I don't still don't like it musically but but I think it is important and this, this the girl that he wrote writes about the prostitute she's had a rough life as the song says yeah. but there's no tears in her eyes. She knows what she's doing. She knows what to expect and she's going to make it through no matter what. I'm sure you have something about the guitar riff, don't you? No, no, go ahead. Oh, the guitar riff that highlights the song uh, is from a 1962 Marvin Gaye oh, song that, called yes, Hitchhike. That I do yeah. have. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I thought you were going to say something more about the way Lou Reed played it and I was like, oh no, I don't have nope. anything about that. But yeah, it's, it's very interesting that for the second time on this album, they're doing that thing where it's a very poppy, upbeat song about a very serious subject. Yeah. And if you didn't really pay attention to the lyrics, you would never know that this song was about a prostitute. You just listen to it in the background. You'd be like, oh, it's a nice pop song. And then you're like, oh, she's out on the streets. She's down on her knees, my friend. But you mm -hmm. know, she'll never ask you please again. And it sounds like this. Sings like Dylan a lot. Yeah. Distressingly like early Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good quote. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do? It's me, bad feeling. <laughs> but uh, like you were about to say, this was heavily influenced, and it borrows a lot from Marvin Gaye's song "Hitchhike," which sounds like this. It even kind of has that call and response where Marvin Gaye is singing and then the backup singers say, hitchhike, hitchhike, baby. So, and then in turn, which I think you yeah, also- do that again. Hitchhike, hitchhike, baby. Love it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in turn, regardless of what they say, English rock band The Laws had to have been influenced by this song and Marvin Gaye for their version, their song called There She Goes. They are another uh, one album wonder band. Uh, they I, I didn't know that. They only have one album. It's called The Laws. The Laws. And that song, if you've never heard it, sounds like this. 
So uh, this song, uh, the Laws version of it, is also about love or heroin or both. So obviously there was some influence there. Love or heroin. Not talking about this, but I have to bring this up. That song, the version by the Laws, ranks at number 22 on NME's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Burn NME to the ground. That is such trash. 22? I could... (laughs) Are you are you telling and me above? I would be like, okay, maybe, yeah, yeah, that's that's maybe acceptable. Are you are you trying to tell me that in the history of rock and roll there are only twenty one better songs than "There She Goes Again" by the Laws? Yes, apparently, by according the to laws. Enemy, that is correct, Matthew. Hot stinking garbage. <laughs> that is an embarrassment. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't see that. Now I'm going to be sending a strongly worded email. Dear sir slash madam. <laughs> Ooh, you, t- you comparing me to Robert Christigel? Well, I'm just going to get my word salad dictionary out. It's anti-diadactic. <laughs> this song is anti-diadactic, <laughs> facetious, and very probable. It's churlish. It's churlish. <laughs> Oh, oh shit. Boy. I'll be your mirror, Matthew. <laughs> Uh, third and final song, song sung by Nico. Uh, people have speculated for years that Reed wrote this song for her, but apparently he had written it years before yeah. when he was a student at Syracuse. But the lyrics could easily represent their relationship, and some people said that Nico said the line to him, I'll be your mirror, Lou, to Reed after a show, but that story was clearly apocryphal. Uh, Reed stated in several interviews that he wrote it much earlier, and when Warhol heard it, he wanted Reed to give it to her to sing, which he was reluctant to do. Yeah. It is a love song and not typically the sort of thing you would expect from Reed at all. And I guess this was the most difficult song on the record for Nico to sing. The band wanted delicate vocals for the song to match the music, and she kept getting louder and louder and louder. And finally, after several takes, Sterling Morrison tells this story. She kept singing I'll Be Your Mirror in her strident voice. Dissatisfied, we kept making her do it over and over again until she broke down and burst into tears. At that point, we said, oh, try just one more time and then fuck it. If it doesn't work this time. We're not going to do the song. Nico sat down and did it exactly right. See, all you have to do is tear them down to build them back up. Yeah, you know, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I can't remember. I'm sorry, I missed if you mentioned her name or not. Uh, Shelly Albin is the girlfriend that Lou supposedly wrote this song about. Oh, no, I He later wrote another song about her called Pale Blue Eyes, and there's some shared lyrics between the two songs if you you look for them. Weirdly, though, Lou himself said to an audience at London's Scala Cinema in 2013, quote, I wrote, I'll be your mirror for Nico. Every single word was meant for her to make her feel better about herself. But he also said in an interview that that wasn't the case. I know. So I saw okay, both of whatever. those quotes. So I don't <sighs> know if he got old and forgot or... God damn you, Lou Reed. You know, whatever. But very interesting that he said it both ways. So... And the music is fine. It's very simple, unadorned, less noisy than others on the record. It's a very sweet song that I wish had been sung by somebody else. Yeah. And it sounds like this. don't know the beauty you are but if you don't let me be your eyes a hand to your darkness so you won't be afraid when you think the night has in your mind that inside you twisted and unkind let me stand to show that you are blind please put down your hand 
I tend to agree with you on this one. I think had it been sung by somebody different, I think this would have been a better song. And again, not to knock Nico, but I think that her voice did not fit with this type of a song. No. So, the Black Angels' death song. And this is exactly what you get with an experimental band. Yep, I hate the last, this song. The last song was melodic and gentle. Some changes, not a bad tune. And then this one is loud, nonsensical, chaotic in places, and a mess in other places. Lyrics like the rally man's patter ran on through the dawn until we said so long to his skull. Uh-huh. In a footnote to the album, Lou wrote, quote, The idea here was to string words together for the sheer fun of their sound, not <laughs> any particular meaning. Which I'm totally fine with. You know, I encourage all of you to go out there and read them yourself and you will see exactly what he's talking about because they're nonsense. And there's plenty of songs like that. That's not the issue. Reed has said that this song was never popular with the clubs yeah. that they would play in. And for a while, if clubs wanted to shut down, they would invite them to come play this song to get people the fuck out of their <laughs> club. Even at the club they were regulars at, Cafe Bazaar, fired them for playing what they called a furious version of this song. <laughs> the song is crazy enough. A furious version must have been nutso. The hissing into the mics, yeah. the feedback, oh, God, that noise, the single viola note in the background, the drop tune guitars. It all makes for not the best listening experience overall. Yeah. That story about the Cafe Bazaar, the manager actually ordered them not to play it again. They played it once. The managers said, don't ever play the song again, which they responded by playing again, quote, with a vengeance, end quote. <laughs> And then they were promptly fired, which honestly, I don't like the song, but I think that's great. So punk of them. Yeah, right. This is what it sounds like. The choice of the mine on ice skate scraping chunks from the bills. So knowing that this is just like an amalgamation of sound, for some reason, lots of people seem to think this is an anti-communist song or it's another song about heroin and drug use or about being a psychotic or about taking psychotics. But when you hear that Lou Reed was like, yeah, we just strung the words together because they were fun sounding. And if you know their history as avant-garde fans and aficionados and listening to discordant orchestral music, you can see they're influenced by it. It's this is not a drug song, no. although they were probably drugged out when they were take, or oh, recording it. But I don't think that's the point. The point is, how long can people tolerate this? That's usually the point in something like that. How long before people walk out? So then this begs the question, did they influence bands like the Grateful Dead and Fish? How long can how people long? take this before they walk out? How it depends long? on what drugs they're on. How long will they play this song before you ride I the walk wave of out? acid just right? You can be at a fish concert for nine and a half hours. 
hours and nobody will get pissed off. And they're still on the second song. They're still only two songs in, man. We got 48 hours to go. Oh, God. Uh, Of course, Beck has done a cover of this song because, of course, he He, has. He did an entire record. He did an entire, like, cover of the entire record. Yeah. That sounds like Beck. (laughs) Uh, European Sun. Very interesting. A seven and a half minute closer. Yeah. With only two stanzas of lyrics and a whole lot of noise. Yeah. With crashing plates and everything you might expect them to try. The song itself is a dedication to Lou Reed's literary mentor, Delmore Schwartz, one of his professors at Syracuse. Although, dedication or... It's kind of more of a fuck you to Delmore Schwartz. Song of loathing is what people have called it, more out of spite than anything else, because apparently Schwartz refused to see Reed when he was dying in a hotel in New York City. Turned his back on him, essentially. And Lou Reed's telling him, basically, fuck off, like you said. So much distortion and feedback. Oh, dude. I think this, too, this feels just like an extended jam session. Yeah. The last six minutes of the record is just like a bunch of eight-year-olds yeah. that just walked into a room with really loud instruments. Everything's still plugged in and they're like bleep, 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 over and over and over again. Here, listen to those eight-year-olds play this song. You made your wallpapers green You want to make love to the sea Your European sun is gone You better sit so long Your clouds just to goodbye Like you said, this was recorded in April 66, and uh, Delmore Schwartz died three months later in July, on July 14th, 1966. Supposedly, they picked this song to dedicate to him because it had the least amount of lyrics of any song on this album, because he specifically stated multiple times that he hated rock lyrics. (laughs) According to musicologist Richard Witz, uh, I think you said a little bit of this already, but uh, he said, quote, uh, this song reads like little more than a song of loathing to Schwartz. Yes. Yeah. Wits also highlighted obscure personal details in the lyrics of this song, such as you made the wallpapers green and found the lyric, hey, hey, bye, bye, bye. More of a malicious farewell to its subject than a fond goodbye. Basically a double finger, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> weirdly, this song actually provided a lot of influence for the Velvet Underground's next album, uh, White Light, White Heat. Specifically, mm-hmm. the song on that album, Sister Ray, which is another extended jam session. Uh, in 17 minutes? Yeah, 17 minutes and 29 seconds. It is a long-ass jam song. 17 minutes of that. Uh, no, thank you, sir. Yeah, it's not worth <laughs> it. That one, yeah. So what do you think of this album, Matthew? I mean, we've already kind of laid this out, but... I think it's important. I think it was necessary. I think it's important. I think it's influential. I don't think it's great. But I think it has a very unique spot in music history as something that so many bands that were miles better than them musically look back to as an influence for their music. And I think that's important. And Lou Reed's stuff post Velvet Underground is fantastic stuff in its own 
own right. But this this album, I'll still be someone that just doesn't get it, I guess, yeah. or lies about getting it. Yeah, I would say ultimately, I feel like this is a middle ground album for me. I see, I, I appreciate it for being the genesis and the, the beginning of a lot of other music, but it's not something that I return to frequently to listen to. Right. On the other hand, their 1970 album Loaded is very good. It's a very 60s influenced, but much more refined pop album. Mm. It's very, very good. Um, and the only reason I didn't pick it to talk about was because I wanted specifically to talk about how Loaded influenced some people, but this really influenced some people. Yeah, have to go back and listen to it. Yeah. And everybody out there should go and listen to it. And yeah, then you absolutely. should tell us what you think. You should you should hop on social media, go to facebook.com forward slash audio judo or Twitter at audio judo or Instagram at audio underscore judo, or you can send us an email at info at audio judo.com and let us know what you think. Let us know that I'm still missing the point and that's fine because I probably am. And you should tell me that. You should tell me what you think about this record and you should say, you know what? That record's not even the most influential record. It's it's this record and tell us so we can put it on our list and we can uh, we can talk about it for yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Or you can get involved in our Patreon, and we're going to give some shout-outs to uh, some of our uh, patrons or right now. Yeah, so Simon C., uh, our UK consultants at the Shout Out Loud tier, thank you so much. Uh, Aaron P., Darlene W., and Michael A., uh, Front Row Seats tier, thank you all so much. And Christian S., David W., Kristen K., Michael S., and Scott K., uh, all of our Backstage Pass tier members, thank you all so much. Uh, I know a couple of Absolutely. you have done episodes already, a couple of you have episodes coming up. Uh, we're excited to do those with you both. Very. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, episodes coming up from The Police, Roxy Music, Judas Priest, and uh, we have uh, the beginning of our fifth season on the way. So we are excited about all that, and we hope you stick around with us. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.